All right, I'm going to read to us from Ephesians chapter 4. We'll come back to this text. So if you want to turn there, it's Ephesians chapter 4, verses 10 through 16. I'm going to read initially from the, the message version, so you might not be in what you have, but it will be up on the screen. We'll come back to the ESV version later, like we'll, so we'll kind of make a full circle to it. Um, but just as a way to kind of call our attention back in to, um, to where we're at today. So Ephesians chapter 4, verse 10 says, And the one who climbed down is the one who climbed back up, up to the highest heaven. He handed out gifts above and below, filled heaven with his gifts, filled earth with his gifts. He handed out gifts of apostles and prophets, evangelists and pastor teachers to train Christ's followers in skilled servant work, working within Christ's body, the church, until we're all moving rhythmically and easily with each other, efficient and graceful in response to God's Son. Fully mature adults, fully developed within and without, fully alive like Christ. No prolonged infancies among us, please. We'll not tolerate babes in the woods, small children who are an easy mark for imposters. God wants us to grow up, to know the whole truth and tell it in love, like Christ in everything. We take our lead from Christ, who is the source of everything we do. He keeps us in step with each other, his very breath and blood flow through us, nourishing us so that we will grow up healthy in God, robust in love. You know, within um, kind of our role within the Anchor Collective, if you're not familiar with the Anchor Collective, but it's, it's a group of about, there's about 65 churches now that are a part of it in some sort of way or another, that we get together on a monthly basis to pray together and, and just seek the Lord to hold fast to Jesus in our time and place. And um, it's a really beautiful thing. There's, I, I think, uh, 13 denominations and six ethnicities represented in it, but it's a pretty cool thing. And we're, we have, our faith family has kind of been a, um, a facilitator of that group happening since its beginning almost nine years ago. And we're also a part of a network called the Acts 29 Network, which you may or may not be familiar of, but it helps start churches here in the U.S. and, and internationally. But with, with kind of our role, my role within that, I often meet with new-to-the-area pastors, hope-to-be pastors, preparing church planners like I did this week um, on Thursday. The interchanges in these meetings always involve some sort of exchanging of histories. Where did you come from? What did you do? What are you up to? Some sort of description of where we are as a faith family and where we hope to be, where they are, and where they might hope to be. And almost always, in some form or another, this question. What's the most surprising thing you've discovered in planting and pastoring? That question always comes up in some form or another, in some sort of form or fashion. What have you learned the most? What's the most surprising? What's the thing that you didn't expect? All that kind of stuff. And my answer, without hesitation, is the same today as it was, the same on Thursday as it was early into our decade-long endeavor. And here's my answer. Freedom in Jesus is hard, and sometimes we don't want it. To me, that's been the most surprising thing that I've learned about myself, about life in the kingdom, about what God's doing here in this place, and what God is doing in the hearts of men and women, is that freedom in Jesus is hard, and sometimes we don't want it. My assumption in planting, especially in our context, was that freedom in Jesus was what people wanted, what I wanted, and that living free would be well freeing. <laughs> Yet both the difficulty and lack of motivational force that is freedom in Christ continue to amaze me at times. It's like I'm still learning a new way of being with all the hitches and hiccups that come with growing up in the world for the first time. And yet it's clear to me from our first informing stories of Scripture 
from the garden to the promised land, through all the collective prayers of the Psalms and prophetic pronouncements, all the way to the lips of Jesus. As he said, if you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will what? It'll set you free. To the appeal of the early church, for freedom, Christ has set us free. We just sang it. Paul said it. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. It seems to me, again, clear in our scriptures, in our history, that living free is both our beginning and our end. That this is what, how we were created, and this is what our end will be. And yet, as Paul's exhortation presumes, something about freedom would have people give it up. There is something about freedom that requires conviction and courage to hold to. This means freedom probably isn't autonomy. The emancipation from everything that binds and bonds. Nor is it the ability to get, do, or be anything I want. But freedom means something else. It must mean something else, right? Or why would we give it up? Walking into this tension of freedom, different and deeper, a freedom that requires, not, that requires and not merely gives, is our pilgrimage of faith. Speaking of the history and tension of this freedom from within the Jewish community, uh, history and tension we share in our faith story, right? Even as we'll discuss in a minute, if we wrestle with it in a different way, Rabbi Abraham Heschel says this, and I'm going to have an extended quote. I'm going to read it for us, but it's going to be up on the screen so you can follow along with me. This is what, speaking from the Jewish community's tension of history, the tension of, and history of freedom and what it calls us to and what it requires of us. This is what the rabbi says. When the voice of God spoke at Sinai, those, those moments after Exodus, right? It did not begin by saying, I am the Lord your God who created heaven and earth. It began by saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of bondage. Remember, we said it every Sunday in the summer, right? That's how we received our communion. Seeing the, the ten words over and over again, but remembering we said those ten words because God spoke first, and He said, not just that I create, but I free. Judaism, says the rabbi, is not only deliverance from external slavery, the reality of what was happening in the story, but also freedom from false fears and false glories, from things that would that would keep us living anxious and things that would throw us off the path if we were to live for them. From fashion, things that in the moment seem to be the most important thing, the best things. From intellectual will-o'-the-wisps, from, from philosophical pursuits that are always just out of our grasp and never really anything that we can hold on to. The most commanding idea that Judaism dares to think, says the rabbi, is that freedom, not necessity, is the source of all being. Freedom, not necessity, is the source of all being. The universe was not caused, but created. We, were, we didn't just happen, we were made. Behind mind and matter, order and relations, the freedom of God obtains. The, inev the inevitable is not eternal. All compulsion is a, result, is a result of choice. And a tinge of that exemption, the exemption of not being caused, but created, is hiding in the folds of the human spirit. Isn't that what the psalmist in Psalm 139 testifies to? When we are not, we are not taught to feel accused, that's what the enemy does, nor to bear a sense of boundless guilt. In the Jewish culture, that's what the sacrificial and religious system ensured and alleviated, right? We are asked to feel elated, to go out in joy, as Isaiah would say, 
bread to meet the tasks that never end, made for something, to go into something, led into the becoming and making whole and complete. The cypress in the desert, like, um, uh, like Cohen and Sawyer read for us, monuments to God's ever-creating. As a free being, the Jew must accept an enormous responsibility. And all that thing of being not just caused but created, being told that over and over in your life that this is, the, this is the history, this is the truth of what your life is built upon, that you are not caused, you're created, that you're brought into being with purpose, for purpose, that you're free. The Jew must accept in that freedom or an enormous responsibility. The first thing a Jew is told is you can't let yourself go. Get into harness. Carry the yoke of the kingdom of heaven. He is told to bear loads of responsibility. He is told to adore self-complacency, to enjoy freedom of choice. He has given, been given life and death, good and evil, the keys to the kingdom, we might say, and is urged to choose, to discriminate. Yet the freedom is not only the ability to choose and to act, but also the ability to will and to love. The predominant feature of Jewish teaching throughout the ages is a sense of constant obligation, which means, amongst other things, that freedom presupposes the capacity for sacrifice. Isn't that what obligation is to some degree? An ability to give up something for something. No wonder then, freedom is a challenge and a burden against which man often rebels. He is ready to abandon it. Since it is full of contradiction, is not will and love always contradicting in us in some sort of way? Contradiction of reason, desire, and devotion. And isn't freedom continually under attack? No wonder we run from it at times. The meaning of freedom is not exhausted by deliberation, decision, and responsibility, though, although it must include all these. The meaning of freedom presupposes, as we talked about last week, an openness to transcendence to something more than, outside of, other than ourselves. And man has to be responsive to this awe and wonder and reverence before he can be responsible within it. Which is why there is no freedom without all. The shock of radical amazement that our life is wrapped up in God's life, the humility born in awe and reverence that God is not just for us, but is with us, has made us and has shaped us. The austere discipline of unremitting uh, inquiry and self-criticism, examination as we called it in the last series, right? Are acts of liberation, liberating us from the routine way of looking only at those features of experience, which are similar and regular, opening our souls to the unique and transcendent, to the Van Gogh and John's lifelight filling all the world. We cultivate, says the rabbi, many moments of silence to bring about one moment of expression. We must bear many burdens to have the strength to carry out one act of freedom. For Heschel, to be one caught in the lineage of our faith is to be one who understands both the essentialness of freedom, freedom to act in agreement with the spirit that goes beyond all necessities, that doesn't just cause but creates, responsive to the one and the true reality that not merely causes, but creates, as well as the weight of freedom, essentialness of freedom and the weight of freedom, 
the enormous responsibility, the capacity for sacrifice, the degree of independence that's necessary to be free, which is required of freedom in relationship, which communion and participation in that which transcends inherently carries with it. There's essentialness to freedom and a way to freedom. That's what it means to be a person of faith in the Jewish community. That's what it means to be a person of faith in, our, in the foundations of our tradition. To be free in our faith, to live full and forever, is to live in awe, open to transcendence, responsive and responsible with and for one another. The vision of such freedom is, at least in my experience, almost always welcomed. I think everybody likes the vision of it. Nobody doesn't like Starry Night, right? It's a pretty painting. It's been all over. Still, it's the how, the practicals, the details amid the overwhelming awareness of what is lacking. But our nights aren't as starry as these. The anxieties of a multiplicity of tasks and responsibilities that delude this vision of freedom and loyalty to the vision of freedom in Christ intend to weaken us to a place of submitting again to a yoke not made for us. A yoke of the kingdom of heaven, translated more so like a yoke of religion or church, fruitfulness or success. Where we differ from our Jewish heritage is not an ontology. It's not the nature of our being. We agree there. It's not our cosmology, not the nature of the universe. We agree there too. Or even our anthropology, the nature of our humanity. But it's in our doxology, the nature of our worship. We worship not in perpetual anticipation, a laboring under a yoke of the kingdom of heaven where every wearing, where we're ever wearing the restraint of a future expectation. If we just get this right, if, when, and how we can live into right relationship with God, the kingdom will come, the Messiah will be there, we'll be ready and made the world ready for him. That's not what we labor under. Instead, we worship and labor. Liturgy literally means the labor of the people, the work of the people. We labor within the peace, the rest of the kingdom of God in our midst. That our way of life is an entry into, or not, a life with God and others for which we are made and made for us. We don't bring the kingdom, we enter the kingdom. That's a very different way of laboring, isn't it? This is how Jesus said it. At that time, Jesus declared to all those whose lives orbited around the temple, the church, as we might think of it, whose community was their synagogue, whose life was built on faith, around faith, and in faith. He says to those people, not those outside of faith, but those within the confines of faith. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy. The little translation of easy is my yoke is made for you. It fits you perfectly. And my burden, the weight of my load, which cannot be transferred, is light. Ironically, my burden is not burdensome. It won't crush Listen, we labor under a different yoke than the Jewish tradition, right? We carry a different weight than our Jewish ancestors. Still, the manner of living free has not changed all that much. 
Our collective and individual faith practices equip us to be free in our God-gifted responsibility with and for one another. Even though we labor under a different yoke, our labors aren't all that different. And over the past few weeks, we've said, as Van Gogh's painting portrays, that our our God-created life together, our cypress tree in the desert, is a means to draw eyes, ears, and hearts to God alive and active all around us. That indeed our life together in Jesus is lived off-center from the thing, the structure of church as we typically think of it. While we cannot deny the significance or escape the necessity of being a part of the body of Christ, church always finds its way into the painting, remember? Why it's necessary for us to be connected and contributing to follow Jesus, following Jesus with others The activities and ambitions of church structured don't make a life. Remember what we said in my great clip art? The life is lived outside of the church, and we would would never deny that, right? But church isn't our life. Church is not our life. Church can help us live, but it's not where life actually happens. What we've said is the testimony of our scriptures of Jesus himself is that life is made good in, through, and for Jesus in all the places in which the kingdom is actually coming. All our community activities then, as the people of faith, are meant to cultivate the root of our faith. Awe and reverence, an awareness and appreciation of the grandeur and the mystery and beauty of God's life in the grandeur places of existence, in the places, again, where the kingdom is coming and God's will is being done. And so we say that we live all life from in and to Jesus. All that beckons a response so that we might be responsible in our freedom is what we're after. So to orbit Jesus together is to live free in faith and all in response in our bound relationships and responsibilities. We cultivate all in reverence responsibility for life in, through, and for Jesus, as we said last week, in our ways of being together, in our spiritual friendships, in our gatherings, our gospel communities, even our service, but most aptly by apprenticing ourselves to Jesus, being with Jesus, becoming like Jesus, and doing what Jesus did through what we call our collective and individual faith practices, right? We have, over time, built these out, so I'm not going to go into belabor them. But this is how we say, as a faith family, when we talk about what it means to orbit Jesus together, to not live, to live as a church and not make church the center of our lives, we say we are apprenticing Jesus. And so our time, in between our times together, our time in collectively and individually, is spent following Jesus. And these things, these practices, faith practices, help us be in awe and responsive and responsible in our life together in Jesus. Nothing fancy. Most of the practices we do are pretty old. (laughs) Again, we have a long history. We're not making up something new here, right? But we're trying to figure out in our day and time how to live those out well and true so that we might be ones who, like those in in history, who have lived faithfully, and fruitfully, who have made life good in their time and place. But remember what Jesus said. He said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, and you'll find rest for your souls. 
I think more than anything, we long for a rest for our souls, right? Again, like we're people of faith who grew up in faith to some degree or another, maybe not all of our life, but in some sort of way, whether tangentially or, or immersed in it, we have a history of expectation of faith and what life should produce and look like with life with God. And yet we find ourselves often wearied by faith. And yet Jesus says it doesn't have to be that way. That there's a way in which you can take upon you the faith which is meant for you, made for you. But you have to learn from me and find rest for your soul. So how do we live this life? How do we stay in the vision of freedom in God without submitting again to some sort of yoke of life of faith that isn't the yoke that we're meant for? Our responsibility to God, ourselves, and one another, which is broader than the church, I think, but includes it, the yoke made for us, the burden of responsibility we are made to carry, though carry in a way that allows us to rest in Jesus, is in a word to think little. We live in a time and place where we almost instinctually look to them as both the cause and solution of our problems. See if you've ever, if this is true of you. It's true of me, but I won't assume it's true for you, but I think it might be. Whether them be the government or corporations, media, family, school, or church, they, them, are seen as the source of our issues. And even if we wouldn't use the language explicitly, they too, that is, at least if they'll get it right and they'll listen and they'll change, will be the source of our salvation. Has anybody ever thought about that of the church? If the church would just do this, things would be different. If the church would speak for this, then things would be different. If the church would stand up for this, then things would be different. If the church would just get this right, I wouldn't be in this place. Anybody ever said that? In their hearts or in, with their mouths? I'm guilty. And what we say about the church we often, is often just an implication of the way we actually live, right? We say that maybe about our jobs or the government, or whatever institution we're a part of, or maybe even the family that we grew up in. We have a tendency in our culture, in our day and age, to almost instinctually, almost instinctually, look to them as both the cause and the solution to our problems. Contending with this American propensity to rely on organizations, institutions, programs, systems, or processes to solve the issues of our living, because what happens when we say that, is we say that and we wait for them to act, right? If they'll just change, then we'll change, then things will change. A favorite author of ours, Wendell Berry, suggests a different approach, though. While not denying the fundamental need for justice and compassioned systems, the, the, the interactions, that the organization that makes up our life, nor denying the citizens' role in laboring for such systems, Barry knows what our scriptures testify, that we'll stand before our Creator, the gifter of life, and give an account for not did the system change, but what we did, what we did with our freedom in the system. We won't stand before the Lord and give an account for America, for even for Christ City. We'll give an account for what we did and how we lived in the midst of the system. And maybe we get to be a part of the system changing. That would be awesome. That's what we long for, right? But that's not what we'll give an account before the Lord for. We'll give an account to the gifter of our lives, 
on what we did with our lives, how we used the gift of life that he had given us. So while Barry, in this quote that I'm about to read from him, is primarily referencing social and ecological issues, if you know much about him, he's a, he's a farmer philosopher, so just get ready. We know, as he does, the spiritual relational nature of both our struggles and our hopes. So as I read, when you hear the word government or organization, corporations or bureaus, don't forget to include church-centered life in all its forms. Institutions, networks, denominations, agencies, celebrity pastors, non-celebrity pastors, and the like. So as I read this, keep in mind that he's not just, we're not just talking about political issues in the political sense of uh, Democrat or Republican. We're talking about politics in the sense of what politics really means, which is the people, life together, right? What it looks like to live life together, which includes us as a church. Here's what Barry contends for us, encourages us towards. He says, if we are a hope, hope like an Advent kind of hope, to correct our abuses of each other and of other races and of our land. And if our effort to correct these abuses is to be more than a political fad, a, a recycling energy of groupthink that will in the long run be only another form of abuse, then we're going to have to go far beyond public protest and political action. We're going to have to rebuild the substance and integrity of private life in this country. We're going to have to gather up the fragments of knowledge and responsibility that we have parceled out to the bureaus and the corporations and the specialists that we have submitted again, the freedom that we have submitted again to others and put those fragments back together in our own minds and in our families, in our households, in our neighborhoods. We need better government, better churches, no doubt about it. But we also need better minds better friendships, better marriages, better communities. We need persons and households that do not have to wait upon organizations, but can make necessary changes in themselves on their own. For most of the history of this country, our motto implied or spoken has been think big. A better motto and essential one now is think little. That implies the necessary change of thinking and feeling and suggests the work that comes with it. Thinking big has led us to the two biggest and cheapest dodges of our time, plan making and law making. Sounds like the Pharisees. Somebody perceives a problem and somebody in the government, the institution, the church comes up with a plan or a law. The result mostly has been the persistence of the problem. Have we figured it out yet with all the books and publications and leadership things that we've done over the years? and the enlargement and enrichment of the government, the institution, the thing itself. But the discipline of thought is not generalization. It doesn't take a lot of thought to generally make things happen. It is in detail, and it's in personal behavior. While the government is studying and finding and organizing its big thought, nothing is being done. But the citizen who is willing to think little and accept the discipline of that. It requires discipline, right? Just like, just like Abraham Heschel said. A discipline, an austere discipline to examination. Not a self-examination, but a spirit examining us, right? To walk appropriately in our context, in our relationships. 
But a citizen who's willing to think little and accept the discipline required to think little, to go ahead on their own, is already solving the problem. A person who is trying to live as a neighbor to their neighbor will have a lively and practical understanding of the work of peace and kinship. And let there be no mistake about it, they are doing that work. A couple who make a good marriage and raise healthy, morally competent children are serving the world's future more directly and surely than any political leader, though they never utter a political word. A good farmer, again, buries a farmer, but you can, you can fit in there whatever your vocation may be. A good farmer who is dealing with the problem, whatever the problems of your vocation might be, in this case, a problem of soil erosion on an acre of ground, has a sounder grasp of that problem and cares, loves, knows more about it, and is probably doing more to solve it than any bureaucrat who is talking about it in general. A person who is willing to undertake the discipline and difficulty of many in their own ways is worth more than a hundred who are insisting merely that the government and the industries mend their ways. That's what it means to think little. To be ones who, because we're competent, because we're content, self-sufficient in the life, in life, gifted with all that we need in life, for life, actually live, not waiting for others to live for us. That's how we stay free. And isn't Barry saying what Paul said in Ephesians 4? Ephesians 4, again, here's what it says in the ESV this time. I'm going to add verse 8 into this. Grace was given to each of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And Jesus gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of faith and of knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ. Christ's head, who were held together, whom the whole body, when joined and held together by every joint in which it is equipped, when each part, listen to this, when each part is working properly, when each part is actually being who and what it's meant to be in its fullness. The body grows so that it builds itself up in love. is isn't built up in love, but builds itself up in love. Having been each gifted grace, life, isn't life grace? By Jesus. Gifted parts of the body in Jesus to help join us together in our apprenticeship to Jesus. To encourage and equip us in living to the fullest, to the maturation of our faith through Jesus. Paul commends us to build ourselves up into maturity in Christ Jesus. Each part working, taking up the yoke for which was made for them. Speaking truth in love. An ability that only comes in freedom to one another precisely because Jesus has given us the gifts to do so. Not simply to be built up by the organizational leadership, but equipped, helped along the way to maturing as a means of maturing. To stability. Not to wait for others to act, 
but to act because we are actually able to and maturing to. Not alone and not isolated, not separated from the body, but as a part of the body. And so like any maturing part, when it acts, when it acts and it oversteps, there's a, hey, come back in, hand, don't go off way off that way, right? But it's like, it's not don't act hand. It's like, no, act, act. Well, you'll figure out how do you mature as a human? How do you get better at your job? You actually do it, right? You don't prepare and you don't let somebody else do it. You do it. And you have others who get to walk with you in doing it. It's really not overly complicated, right? But we're called not to simply be built up, but equipped to help and helped along the way to mature. That is our responsibility. Learn from Jesus yourself. Listen, abide, and be led in your personal and daily life. That's what our faith practices help us do. That's all they help us do. Is to learn from Jesus yourself. Listen, abide, and be led in your personal and daily life. You've been given all the means and relationships to do so. Everything you need has been given to you. No one can do this for you, though. Which maybe is why freedom is so easily given up. But if you want to express freedom in who you are, who God knows you to be, if you want to live true, whole, and free, you have to learn to be responsible for yourself so you can be appropriately responsible for one another. Because here's the thing about thinking little together. Being aware of our discontent of what we lack and what we long for, and learning contentment, a self-sufficiency in life himself. When we are thinking little together, we are what the church, the gathered, are meant to be. An oasis in the desert, a testimony or portrait that draws attention to God's powerful working. Or if you like, in a more energetic energy, a crowd whose discontent, says Barry, that has risen no higher than a level of slogans is only a crowd. If our discontent, if our longing for faith and life and faith and wholeness of faith is just that, it's just a slogan. We're for Jesus. We follow Jesus. Like we want to love the world and make disciples and, and all those kind of things, but they're just slogans. They're things we put on coffee mugs. They're things we wear on our, on our T-shirts, on our bumper stickers. Not bad. I'm not making fun of those things. I'm just saying like, like if we think that that is what we're after, if that's all that our discontent is, then really, that crowd's not really going to make much of a difference. Right? I mean, I, th- I think we've proven it true in the last hundred years in our, in just in our little part of the world, right? But, says Barry, a crowd that understands the reasons for its discontent, understand why its heart isn't settled, its soul is anxious and unsettled and disquieted, and knows the remedies knows how to have, as Jesus said, a soul at rest is a vital community and it will have to be reckoned with. For in the words of Jesus to those faithful over a little, I will set you over much. So enter in the joy of your master. Isn't that what we're after? Let me pray first and then I'll give us a few minutes to chat. Father, we thank you That as Paul said, for freedom we have been set free. That our life together 
our life together is, is part of our maturation and our means of maturation. That each and every person in this place, here and not here, that are part of this faith family and are part of the broader and bigger and larger faith family, has been not just caused but created, formed and shaped. And when each of us are working as we should, are living and taking on the yoke that Christ has for us, His yoke, build each other up into maturity, into fullness out of love. Lord, help us to see that as a grand calling, not merely a slogan. To recognize, Father, Lord, the discontent of our souls and where it comes from. And to see in Christ and in Christ's life within us and our life together in Christ a remedy not just for our longings and our rest, but as we'll sing in the days to come, for the joy of the whole world, for peace on earth. Thank you for your grace. Thank you that your grace has gifted us one another in life in you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. So, before we end our time, before we kind of just disperse from here, we've got about five to six minutes just to chat. Talk about it a little bit. So grab a friend, a neighbor, and just ask a couple questions. At least get to one of them. You might not get to both. But in what ways do you feel the challenge and burden of freedom in Jesus? Again, it was a surprise to me and shock to me. It still is sometimes. My own longing to to be bound by something else, (laughs) but also the fact that it seems pretty normal in our culture to say we want freedom, but then to run from the responsibility. And then maybe if you have time, how can you take responsibility? Think little and enter the joy of your master. In what ways can we encourage each other to actually walk in the things, the relationships, the places we are, to be faithful to what God's given us? So, Talk amongst yourselves, and then I'll call us back up for communion in a minute.